Welcome to the only thing that matters, getting your startup to product market fit here on Chicago Founders TV. Mark Andreessen famously talks about product market fit as the only thing that matters, because without it, your startup is dead. Today, we're going to talk about a special type of startup, marketplaces, networks, and platforms. They're special in two ways. One, achieving product market fit is very difficult to do because you have the proverbial chicken-egg problem. Without buyers, how do you get sellers to show up? Without sellers, how do you get buyers to show up? Solving that paradox is a challenging riddle, but a critical one. And the second reason it's so important is because once you do, you have an incredibly defensible and powerful business. Today's episode features Sam Yagan, founder of SparkNotes and OkCupid. Sam is a great founder and a great mentor around town to so many startups. There's a lot of wisdom in Sam's founder story interview, but he particularly focused on product market fit. When he talked about SparkNotes, he explained that SparkNotes had an easy time of achieving product market fit, no doubt helped by the fact that they were students and understood how to use their product and they were their own market. He also talked about how it took a lot longer to achieve product market fit for OkCupid and that that was driven significantly by solving the proverbial chicken egg problem. In this next clip, Sam describes how they did both as well as the clever and creative way that they eventually solved the chicken egg problem for OkCupid. So it was one of those things where we didn't do any market sizing or competitive analysis. It was just like SparkNotes. And we like walked out of that meeting and we're like, we're going to do SparkNotes. And we made, um, you know, we, we called some of our best friends who were English majors and we said, hey, I know you just did a, literally this one woman of our, friend of ours, she had just written a sen summa senior thesis, senior thesis on uh, Moby Dick. And we're like, will you write a SparkNote? And she's like, I've just paid $120,000 to write papers for four years. Now you're going to pay me to write a paper? She's like, this is, this is, a great, this is great. And so um, over spring break, uh, March, spring break in March of 1999, we had 10 of our friends write SparkNotes, put them up on the site, and uh, immediately inundated with hate mail from all these students for whom we didn't have the note they needed. Uh, they were like, you, you know, where's Romeo and Juliet? Where's Hamlet? Where's all these titles I need? Like, I hate you, SparkNotes. Um, and, and I think that was... Um, that was you know, that's the best kind of hate mail to get, of course. And so spent the summer um, ramping up, and there you go. And what was it that made, you said, you, know, you talked about why SparkNotes was different, and I think you talked about the Fs, sure. the reasons why. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you think about Cliff's Notes, um, they are, they are um, most importantly, they're unavailable when you need them. Think Cliff's Notes, the paper version, 1998. They're sold in a bookstore. The bookstore closes at like 8 o'clock. Um, and... So you can't, and you're, if you're using a cliff note, you're probably doing it late at night the night before your papers do. So you're like, okay, well, where's the cliff note when I need it? Um, it's not searchable. Uh, you, ho you hope the index is good, but you know, it's, not, it's not searchable. It's, um, it's still linear content. It's hard to get what you need. Um, it's expensive. In the world of a culture, it's $5. That's a beer you can't have. Um, if you're, if you're, you know, it's like grades or beer, and you, know, you don't want to put any college student in that dilemma. Um, and, um, and then finally, the tone is so dry and so... It's like some, you know, just dry and, and not fun to use. And so we said, well, look. They hired um, professors instead of students, I think. Yeah, exactly. And so we said, look, if we can get, um, if, we can, if we can make the content better, more relevant, written by people who are just as smart, but just writing in a more modern, relevant tone, um, if we can make it available 24-7 digitally um, through the web, and if we can give it away for free, then I sort of said, well, if you look at free, fun, effective is like my three Fs, even though I know there's, either two or four Fs, depending on how you count, um, <laughs> but not three. 
um, if you if you if you think of it that way, then which side of that competition do you want to be on? Would you rather be on this? Uh, would you rather be promoting the product that's more expensive, lower quality, and less fun, or the product that's free, fun, and effective? And of course, you take the free, fun, and effective. And I think Cliff's Notes was just never ever able to react. And I think that's true of a lot of legacy businesses. They see this insurgent, disruptive company, and immediately um, they freeze up. And if you think about it, Cliff's Notes isn't an editorial company. Cliff's Notes is a company that excels at printing books in China, putting them on a boat, and putting them on trucks to retail, retail stores. That's what they do. They're a, logistics, they're a printing and logistics company. And so when faced with a technology company that understands editorial, they didn't, it wasn't a fair fight. So talk about the growth and, and what happened uh, with Spark Notes in terms of it's taken off. Yes. Give, for those who remember but maybe don't know the business side of the story. Yeah, so um, you know, the, first, the first Spark Note went up in, um, in March, like I said, March of 99. Uh, uh, by September, we had launched 100 titles, and by the following school year, by the school year that started 2000, we were the we had taken over as the majority, um, as the larger. We'd taken over the majority market share from CliffsNotes, wow. not in terms of revenue, but in terms of usage, um, because again, it's just the distribution through through the internet was so high. Um, and in that time period, we had we had raised a little round of financing, quarter million dollars, and uh, we had sold the company uh, 11 months after we founded. Uh, so I'm sitting in my uh, sitting in my apartments in New York. It's a Friday night around, Thanksgiving is like, a, I guess now that I think about it, a lot of important things in my life have happened around Thanksgiving. Um, it's kind of week after Thanksgiving, um, and I get a call from my friend Chris. It's a Friday night. He's like, yo dude, which is how he often greets me. I'm like, hey Chris. <laughs> and you can tell he's like in a loud bar. He's like, so we should make a dating site. I'm like, and he's clearly drunk. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, and he's like, and, he should, and I'm like, okay. And he's like, here's what it's gonna do. It's just gonna be a button. It's going to be the blind date button. And you click it, and we give you a blind date that night. I was like, OK. <laughs> and I like, was like, fine. And uh, so I hung up, and I remember saying to you know, my roommate, and I was like, whatever. Chris is crazy. And so he actually, so I, was like, I was like, OK, well, call me tomorrow if you want to talk. And so he actually calls me tomorrow, Saturday. He's like, so what do you think of my idea? And I'm like, you're not serious. And he's like, no, we should totally do this. And I was like, OK, fine. Um, so we got together, and um, it turned out that a blind date button is not a great idea to launch a dating site. And so we kind of like, but it was like the inspiration was he was like, we got to do dating. And see, but this is interesting. So, but the big idea of the blind date. So talk about how you learned that was. That oh, well, you know, I think we, you know, we just did some really basic math, which is like, in order to be able to actually, you know, for you, for us to be able, the liquidity you would need to be able to give you a blind date tonight with someone who is of the appropriate. Geography, gender, mm -hmm. age, et cetera. Like, you need so many people. Um, so we're like, okay, well, that's not going to work. But then we just started thinking about the, the category more. And we said, okay, well. So that was just the trigger to get Yeah, that was the trigger that really made us start thinking about it. And, um, uh, and, and once, we, once we started thinking about it, we saw, again, kind of what I said earlier in this talk. There, was, you know, there wasn't a lot of innovation happening. Um, there was a lot of innovation happening. And, and we kind of really worked on a different product that we were excited about. And it was much more around using math. Uh, to, help, to help get you dates. So, you um, so the early days were, were largely around really sort of solidifying what our, what our product was going to be. Um, and, um, and again, Chris sort of is the, is the product inspiration for, for it. And you know, he kind of came up with this matching algorithm for how we were going to match people together. And that, to this day, is kind of OkCupid's core differentiator, um, is that we think we can predict compatibility better than, better than anyone else. Um, and so there, there was that piece, but then there was also the piece about like how are we going to get users? Um, and uh, you know, 
again, you know, take yourself back to 2004, MySpace was the dominant social network at the time, and um, you know, people had widgets um, on their MySpace pages, and um, you know, we really came up with some really great ideas about having these, we had, this Myers, we had this test called the Online Dating Persona Test, which was basically a Myers-Briggs for dating. And there were four axes, and you'd get one of 16 personality types for guys and 16 personality types for girls. And the personality types were both really, really accurate and really, really funny. And so we literally would have, we had millions of people take this test um, and then put it on their MySpace page. And so in the same way that people now will use, you know, Facebook, the Facebook platform to sort of drive engagement, um, we used the MySpace platform before it even wasn't, it wasn't actually a platform, of course, but we used MySpace as this, as this way to drive viral growth. And so we got our first half million users, all uh, largely from people promoting our content on MySpace. Wow, how long did that take? Um, it, it took a good, it took a good uh, year or so, maybe a year and a half. Still incredible. Um, and you know, when we when we launched, we launched as a as a personality testing site. There wasn't any dating; you couldn't date because you have dating has this big problem of liquidity. Right. And every dating startup you know, that comes and talks to me, I'm just like, it's all about can you get to the first hundred thousand users? Because if you have a dating site with ten thousand users, you might as well have not a dating site because it's just not enough. Um, and so for the first year and a half, we were really just a personality testing site. We were sort of collecting people's, collecting a lot of data about people. Sort of before we knew big data was a thing, we were big data. Um, so we had all these users and we had all this data about them, uh, but we didn't let them see each other. And then right around January of 06, we sort of pulled up the curtain and we did a big site redesign. And instead of coming and saying, take this quiz, we said, hey, come look for people like you. Um, and that was when we became a dating site. In, in, so we raised, we raised $6 million in 2006. Everything's great. Um, and, uh, you know, but there's this expectation of hockey stick, um, especially for consumer companies that, you know, that don't have sort of big, you know, sort of business models outside of ad revenue, which we didn't at the time. Um, and so the growth wasn't coming. And, uh, you know, I think as we look back in retrospect, I think it's fair to say we, we lost our way. Um, we lost confidence in our own abilities. I think, we, you know, we had a track record from Sparknotes and from the first three years of, of OkCupid that, we can build great product and build organic traffic. Um, but it wasn't happening at the rate that we wanted. So we set out on a couple uh, attempts to sort of jumpstart growth. The first was that we went international. We said, look, if it's, not, if, it's not working, okay, if it's not working in the US, let's go do this personality quiz in 20 markets. Just hope it catches in four or five of the markets. And you'll have a big German business and you'll have this, and you know, maybe you'll get hockey sticks sort of in other places. Um, it was a complete disaster. Uh, we got zero, we got not even a hockey puck. We got nothing, we got a zero. Um, and that, that was bad. Um, and then um, we actually fulfilled Chris's dream of the blind date button. We launched something called Crazy Blind Date. Um, but we launched it, like, this is 2007, so this is pre-smartphone. So we got this short code Cupid, and imagine, imagine the user experience on your old flip phone of setting up a blind date. It's bad. It's just bad. Um, now, we, we, th we think about it. We got 10,000 dates to happen in that year. Um, uh, and the first thing I did every morning when I came to work was I would read the reviews of the blind dates. And they were awesome to read. Um, they'd be like, you set me up with a lunatic. But she was great, you know? And it's like, <laughs> you know, you set me up with my sister. You set me up with someone who went to jail. Like, literally, we got everything. You set me up with my boss. We literally got all four of those. Um, which I was like, okay, this is the... This I have a friend who got set up with his ex-wife on JD. Oh, perfect. That ends well. Perfect, perfect. 
Um, so um, yeah, so so it was great. It was great fodder for uh, for my you know morning coffee. Um, but um, but as a, you know, it, it it got to ten thousand users. We got a ton of press, uh, ten thousand dates. But um, that wasn't the business either. And so you know, we're kind of plugging along in uh, two thousand eight. Um, and a, we start getting low on cash. Um, and b, uh, the market crashes. And so things got. Uh, that was a scary time. It was a very scary time. Uh, it was. Uh, you know, on, on the one hand, a little bit, you know, necessities of other invention, or, or yeah, I guess that's how the phrase goes. And so it certainly forced us to focus. So, like, we stopped doing these other things. We said, okay, well, we have to get dating in the US to work, or else we don't have a business. So it really focused us. Um, it focused us on um, revenue. I like, starting, in, starting after the crash, I did nothing but ad sales, you know, for that, for 2009. It was, that was it. Um, I had a spreadsheet called GBD for GoBrokeDate.xls uh, sitting there because uh, I didn't want any employee to see it and figure out what GoBrokeDate meant. Uh, so I thought I'd be tricky, um, but we had six weeks of cash in the bank. Wow! Uh, we got down that we got down that low, um, and, um, and what was what was the dynamic then amongst the founders? The dynamic was um, well, it was, it was several fold. It was first, you know, what is you know. What, how do we write by our employees? I think that was sort of one of the first things we were thinking about is like, these are all people who, I know we, we felt a very, a very personal connection to, uh, because the only reason they were working there was because they believed in the founders, as, as most people who join startups do. Um, so that, that was a big part of it for us, but also it was obviously the business. We're like, well, how do we keep this thing from, from going under? Um, and so part of that was just a revenue. So I was able, we sort of squared that on. We were able to get enough revenue and, and sort of start to make some accounts receivable. So there, there was some sort of, cash management effects that we were able to just kind of get us through that particular hurdle. Um, but more than anything, it focused us on saying, okay, we really, really, really have to figure out um, uh, this growth. And so we started, um, we realized that the data we had would be a great marketing tool. Um, and so we started, uh, we started sort of putting out little, little press stories about, um, about using our data to tell compelling stories. One of my favorites is we found out that um, as gas prices go up, people narrow their search radius on dating sites. Fascinating. Which is, which is both obvious and fascinating, which is the best kind of data sort of infographic stuff to do, is the stuff that's both fascinating and, you know, that kind of makes you know, sense. gels with you. Yeah. Um, and so we started, like, blasting these out to the reporters. And invariably, they were like, great, I'm not writing a story about gas. Or great, you know, I'm not writing a story about this thing that you're, that you're talking about. So we're like, so we, like, we knew there was something there. We are like, there is a story. Our data is powerful. It can tell a really great story. Um, but we're not doing it right. And so that was when the idea of having, and it's sort of parallel, we were like, we should have a blog, because people were blogging in 2009. I was like, we should have a blog. And so we had this sort of two threads in our heads. One was about have a blog, but what's it going to have on it? And two, this data thing isn't working in its current formation. And so we started this idea of having a data blog. Um, and I don't want to take credit for making, you know, being the first to do it, but we were one of the first to really make sure. you know, these data blogs and infographics. I know I know a ton of people who've never used a dating site. But they know okay, this blog. They know the blog really. Yeah. Um, and so we started doing that, and the blog took off. You want a hockey stick? We finally got our hockey stick. You know, seven years into into uh, OkCupid, we got the hockey stick, and people loved the blog. They couldn't stop sharing it. They couldn't stop. The, the press was insane. Um, we were we were on the front page of a New York Times section three times in the span of like eight weeks, I think. Wow. Um, because everyone was like, "This is this is amazing." 